Well, good morning, church. I'd like to have you open up to Luke chapter 7 this morning. We've been in a series called The Good Doctor, and we'll be in Luke 7 today, which wrestles with a question that every one of us has faced. Where are you, God? I'm in trouble. I'm in desperate need. And things are hard but you are absent. This passage looks at the question, what if God is able to speak even when he's not right there? What if we can hear clearly even when we can't see the way? Storms come to us all and have a way of raising up questions from the deep, those impolite, uncomfortable ones that bother us late into the night. But storms also have a way of exploring different questions than we might otherwise explore. A frequent prayer is, where are you? A more foundational one that encompasses many other questions is, who are you? My name is Dave, and I'm a pastor here at Neighborhood Bible Church. That reality is more important than the particulars of my current location. The psalmist David in the Bible often wondered in his songs, where are you, God? Finally, there was this song that shifts the question from man's perspective to the one who is never wondering where we are. Understanding who he is holds the answers to other questions like where he is. Look at the lyrics of this song. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell on the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Good morning again. For those of you listening uh, weeks from now on the podcast, I was out of the room just to clear that up. This central truth is written in your notes this morning because I don't want you to miss it. It's this. Who Jesus is outweighs where Jesus is. A mid-ranking Roman soldier working the occupied territory of the Jews learns this lesson so profoundly that it actually causes Jesus to marvel. Luke 7 is a kind of transition chapter. We've been looking at this sermon that Jesus has been preaching, and for now, the sermon is over, and so Jesus is on the move. And we've called this this morning um, House Calls, and, uh, and, and really, this chapter looks at Jesus um, just like a doctor making some house calls, uh, visiting some, some different people. Jesus models what he wants for the church. Jesus is a mobile medic. He doesn't stay stationary and put the burden on hurting people to come to the hospital, to come to the doctor, to make an appointment and meet with him. What does Jesus do? He goes to the people. We have this saying around here uh, that says this, come as you are, but don't stay that way. 
Now, that's a really, really good message, especially for those who are visiting and may have a misinterpretation about what church is all about, what Christianity is all about. It's not about getting ourselves nice and healthy so we can visit the doctor. It's the fact that we're broken. It's the fact that we're hurting. It's the fact that we could never get ourselves cleaned up, and so we come as we are. Don't stay that way means when you interact with the living Jesus, your life isn't the same, and we have our living testimonies of this sitting in this room. But I was thinking about this, maybe a better message for the members of this church would be this, go as you are, but don't stay that way. Wouldn't that be an appropriate way to dismiss every church service? Go as you are. That means we're not perfected yet. God's growing us. God's sanctifying us. He's changing us. So go just as you are, but don't stay that way. Isn't it true when you're a mobile medic and you bring the remedy to other people, you, the messenger, are changed? Is that true or not? It is true. When you engage in the kind of life and you engage in the footsteps that Jesus calls you to do, your life is changed, people. So if we say it or not from the front, here's my dismissal from now on for all regular attenders and members. Go as you are, but don't stay that way. This idea uh, on a macro level, this going to, is the theology of incarnation, right? God comes to us. He moves towards the hurt so that he can help. That's sort of on a macro level that, that Jesus is a mobile medic. But here on a micro level, what we see is Jesus going to individual people with problems that are an awful lot like ours. In the sermon that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, which is chapter 6 and preceding, Jesus assures us that storms will come. But he also instructs us on how to withstand them. Quite simply, this little childhood story of building your house on the rock or building your, your, your house on the sand uh, comes down to this. Hear my words, Jesus says, and put them into practice. Hear my words and put them into practice. That foundation, doing that one thing alone, that's what causes you to withstand the storms of life. It's the foundation to rest secure on. So Luke now shows us uh, house calls to four very different people in their distress. We're only going to cover the first one this morning. Gria is going to take the next one, and I think I'll take the next couple. But what we see in chapter 7 is this. A centurion whose slave is on his deathbed. A widow whose son is dead. A cousin of Jesus whose faith is wavering. And a woman whose very identity is her sin. The who of God is on display in Jesus. As we walk through chapter 7, I would invite you to just read the whole chapter, sort of in its entirety, sometime today. On this Sunday, this Lord's Day, take some extra time and just read chapter 7 in its entirety. What we see is that the who of God is on display in Jesus. In each of these four encounters, Jesus' incredible compassion for individual people shine through. Don't let that escape you. Jesus spoke to the crowds. In fact, he had just been talking to the crowds. He had just been preaching to the masses. And yet, what Luke's going to show us is four different encounters where he looks at individuals. He knows their situation. He knows their pain. And he speaks directly into that. 
But rather than just bringing a comforting word, Jesus offers real power over their troubles. Secondly, we see this. In Luke 7, as I sort of thought over these four encounters, what do they have in common? They have, the, they have the compassion of Jesus, the individuality of Jesus, the fact that Jesus speaks power into four different situations that are our situations. Disease, death, doubt, sin. Don't raise your hand, but anyone need any help with those things? Anyone need a word of power to come in and free us from those things? Change our ailments? Yes, we do. But what I also see in these four encounters is this. The great impartiality of God. Each one of these four is an outsider in their own way. Think about it. A Roman soldier in occupied Jewish territory. A widow. A rogue prophet who's in prison. And an immoral woman. Here's the message. This is the good news. God accepts all, regardless of their job, regardless of their background, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their religious experience, regardless of their sexual experience. God accepts all. In our passage today, who is the good news for? The good news is for a military man whose job it was to be opposed to keep in check the very people of God. And what does the good news specifically do in today's passage? Here it is. It reverses the misery of disease. And then on a bigger scale, it reveals, it shows off that the kingdom is for anyone who would trust in Jesus. We've called this series The Good Doctor. And Good Doctor is chosen very, very specifically. It's based off two key verses in Luke. Now, it just so happens that Luke, the one writing this, was a doctor, and so there's a little bit of a play there. But primarily thinking about Jesus... The reason it's called good is this. Someone approaches Jesus and calls him good teacher. And he, re- he replies to the person, why do you call me good? Only God is good. God alone is good. That in itself was a statement of deity. He wasn't saying, I'm not good. Don't call me that. He was pointing out the person's misperception. He was actually making a claim of being God by saying that. Only God is good. So Jesus is the good. That's the who. That's his identity. What is he up to? Later on in Luke, we'll we'll get to this passage. Jesus says these very words. I have come to seek and to save the lost. Good doctor. Who is he? He's God. What is he up to? He's on a rescue mission to heal. Now, before we read our passage, I'm going to cover the first 11 verses here in chapter 7. I want to involve you in a case study. This is hypothetical, but it's not. It's sort of probably a a compilation of some conversations you may have had, or maybe you were on the other end of this conversation. But I want to involve you in a case study. A friend of yours is sick. They are wondering why. Why me? Why now? Why this? They're not getting better. They've sent you a text for help and insight. 
And right before you begin to text them back or pick up the phone to call back, you get a bonus text, and it says this. It says, I'm so sick of the usual Christian cliches. They are of no help to me. Now, here's the case study. Real question, real replies. How do you reply? How would you respond to a person who may be texting you, I'm sick and I'm hurting and I'm doubting and I'm wondering, what's the deal? Where's God? Don't feel like you need to give the perfect answer. You have had these kinds of texts, messages, phone calls, conversations come your way. So let's just sort of get the ball rolling with with some things. You don't have to give the definitive answer right now. Hint, there's no definitive answer, right? So how about it? How would you reply to that? Pray, okay? I don't know. I'm sorry. What? I love you? Yeah. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your pastor. Come out. Come, I'd love to be with you. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's good to kind of role play these situations, isn't it? Because these things happen. And if you're like me, sometimes you, you, you have good answers and you've been helped by some things and you've heard some really great responses and then boom, it's right there in front of you. You ask a question after church, hey, how are things? Someone replies with this. I think... A compilation of what was just said was, was really good. And, and in the moment, right, to just pray and say, God, give me, give me words to say. Give me, for me as a talker, give me words I shouldn't say right now. Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 1. Follow along if you would. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to, he, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our, uh, us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. 
with your Bible open and with what we just read, call out some things that you find commendable, praiseworthy about this Roman centurion. What are some things that you can sort of see in the passage that are, that are noteworthy and commendable? There's several. He, he helped build the synagogue. Yeah. To a people that he doesn't necessarily seem to share their faith, but he's, he's done that for them. What else? He loved the Jewish nation, right? Doing good to them. Okay, he has authority, yeah. And seems to be using it in some ways that are really productive, serving those that he has it. Are Romans known for being kind and cuddly? Roman soldiers, okay? Uh, we've had a couple uh, pass through as members here, Jameson and Ben, um, that, that play a Roman soldier at Bethlehem. Um, when they're in character, it's pretty clear. Like, that's probably how it was. They had this kind of ultimate power in those days. Anything else? He's humble. He's humble. Why, why do we, how do we know that? Right, right. We'll look, we'll look a little bit more at that. Right, yeah. Okay. How about, how about one of the, one of the biggest things, as Jesus commented on it, his faith. Yeah, so let's put that one out there, because Jesus comments on his faith, right? In fact, of all these different things, um, think about this. Uh, a servant, a slave, uh, would have been, in, in, in that context, very, very difficult for us, very, very difficult to get my head around this. But in those days, literally that, that slave, that human being, was like a machine. So we just replaced our washer. Um, I loved our washer until it broke, and then I didn't like our washer so much. You know what I did with it? I got rid of it, and I got a new one. In essence, that's what you could easily do with slaves. He had every right, zero qualms, with just removing that cog, that broken cog from the machinery, and moving something else. And yet this, this man says that he, he loved him, he cared for him. So there's an honoring there even of that slave's humanity. Tons to commend here, and yet Jesus doesn't marvel at anything except his faith. He calls out his faith. In fact, um, think about this. Many, many people respond in amazement to Jesus. I can only find, I can only think of two cases where Jesus is amazed at other people. One is here at the centurion because he had faith. And then one is at the Jews because they lacked faith. Mark chapter 6 verse 6. So, so two instances, both involving faith. It seems that faith really gets Jesus' attention. We read elsewhere in scripture, without faith, it is impossible to what? To please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith of this man gets Jesus' attention such that Luke records, maybe he was amazed at other times, but Luke records, it amazed him. It, he, he, he marveled at it. Here's part two of the question. Why does Jesus heal this centurion's slave? Any thoughts on that? Okay, 
That's right. So it could be that he's trying to show that um, the Gentiles have, have a piece of this. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Okay, right. So it's a unique kind of miracle in that he wasn't physically present. Okay. Good to get our heads around this. You've had this same question. God, why did my friend get healed of this exact same diagnosis, disease, and my dad didn't? Right? Why, why did that person get pulled out of and get healed from this past atrocity? And I can't seem to get out of that. I mean, we've had these same kinds of questions. So it stands to reason that we ought to wrestle with this. Why a centurion's slave? And not my child, right? Here's what I think the most accurate answer is. We don't know. Think about this for a second. If you were building a following, here's what cults do. Some on purpose, some inadvertently. But they grab a, a narrow slice of scripture, a narrow sort of, you know, microscopic spot on some verses. And they build a theology around it. Think about this for a second. If you were building a following off of Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 11, what are the kinds of things you would promote? What are the kinds of messages you would give to people? What kind of picture does it paint of God and his interaction in our fallen state? Any thoughts around that? Let me start you off. Yeah, go ahead, Heather. Hey, Jesus commended his faith. He marveled at it, and it was so great it did things from afar. That's exactly right. What else? Any other thoughts? He didn't complain about slaves. Say that again. He didn't complain about slaves or Roman occupation. Oh, right. I see. So that that could be a, a, a normal situation. Yeah. So, so there are prosperity gospels being preached. What is a prosperity gospel? It means this, that if you have enough faith, that, you, that not only you, will you be healthy, everyone around you will be healthy. Is this centurion a man of, of means? Yeah. He's a military guy, but he has enough money to, to build the synagogue and to be influential in some different things and to have some servants. Who's, who's being spotlighted in the story? It's the centurion. God wants you wealthy. God wants you in charge. God wants you doing some good stuff. God wants to bless with people that will serve you. And God wants all in your, in your household and surrounding to be healthy. And if not, what's the problem? You don't have enough faith. Friends, listen to me really, really clearly. That is a wicked lie. There is a name it and claim it kind of spirit to some preachers, to some churches, to some individuals. Couldn't it stand a reason if you were building a faith off of these 11 verses that we ought to just be telling God what to do? God, you just say the word and you, and you do it. Just like you did for the centurion. Here's the truth of it, friends. We do not know why Jesus chose to heal this one and not another. 
Back to this central truth. Who Jesus is outweighs where Jesus is. When we look at these outsider scenarios, a Roman soldier, a widow, an adulterous woman, a rogue preacher named John the Baptist, this outsider gets Jesus. Why is it? Well, he understood something of his lordship. He knew Jesus to be a king or a ruler. Here's what's kind of fascinating when you think about it. Dr. Luke, that's his profession, is writing this account. And instead of going into details about the symptoms, about the healing, about the kind of ins and outs of this miraculous change of course in this servant's body, instead he doesn't go into any of those details. Why? It seems like it would hold special interest to him. Instead, what Luke seems to be doing is he seems to be spotlighting the man. He seems to be spotlighting the centurion. God's grace to a Gentile. If you line up the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke's has an especially strong ring to to have this message. The gates of the kingdom of God are flung wide open. This is not just a Jewish thing. Of the four Gospels, which one is the Jewish Gospel? It's Matthew. That's why it opens with a a genealogy. If you don't put the, the Messiah in the context of Jewish genealogy, I'm not even listening to you. That's not where Luke starts. Luke is writing as a Gentile to the Gentiles. Saying, world, this is, this is what this is all about. This reality that, uh, that the gospel, the good news, is not just for the Jews, but is for everyone, uh, really stems from who God is. You go back to Genesis, who is God? God's the creator of all. John 3.16 shows that, that Jesus is the Savior for all the world. The covenant promise to Abraham was this, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And so part of the good news is the, the, the newness of this. Jesus comes on the scene preaching something brand new. Your location and your nation are not what get you close to God. We also see Luke spotlighting that this man is faith-filled. This is what stands out to Jesus. It's the focus of the story. Do you want to know the keys to the kingdom? It's faith. Faith is the key to the kingdom. Not just any faith. Does it matter that you have faith? Yes. Does it matter where that faith is placed? Absolutely. Think of a hundred other scenarios that you have. It matters not just that you have faith, but who you have faith in. And finally, someone brought this up. The man was humble. It was in his desperate need that this centurion caused him to consider other possibilities that in good times he wouldn't have considered. He rightly saw himself as being under Jesus. Now to understand the magnitude of that, remember, Roman soldier with money places himself under Sort of a country Jewish preacher. I'm not worthy. And he does so rightly. He rightly sees himself as subservient to Jesus. There's two things that show off this man really well. When he says, Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
That shows off his great faith. When the man says, I'm not worthy, it shows off his great humility. There are two truths that are in tension at all times. And here they are. One is this. We are all on the verge of some kind of storm in our life. It is right around the corner. It may be one of those catastrophic storms that we only have a couple of those in our life and it alters the course of our life. We think of our life in terms of before that event and after that event. It may be a more minor storm. But let me say in the presence of everyone here, you are on the verge of a storm coming. That is truth number one. Is that being fatalistic? I don't think so. I think that's just being realistic in a fallen world. If you haven't watched the news lately, go record one kind of news channel and just listen to an hour of news. There's a lot of storms happening around on systemic levels, family levels, relational levels, economic levels, physical levels, global levels. So you are on the verge of a storm, friends. So am I. Here's truth number two. Truth number two is this. You are invincible until God calls you home. Do you believe that? You're invincible until God says, you're done on this earth. That's an interesting thought, but if Jesus is sovereign, if God is over every atom of this universe, if nothing goes on without his final stamp of approval to say, I allow this, then it's true that you are invincible until God calls you home. You are on the verge of a storm and you're invincible until God calls you home. Let me read you a passage that brings these truths, these two truths together. And it provides immense comfort to those who are trusting in Jesus this morning. This is from Jesus' own mouth in John 16, He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You are on the verge of a storm. You will have tribulation, church. Tomorrow, this week, this month, this year, in the next few years, a storm is coming. And you are invincible until Jesus says, all right, you're coming back home. I have overcome the world. Jesus preached a kingdom that was not of this world. He proved by word and deed that he was, in fact, a king. Not just king of the Jews. That was the label placed over him at his execution. But king over all. Philippians 2.9 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are getting a head start and doing that now in this life, give glory and praise to God that you would find him beautiful to let your tongue do something other than curse God, but praise God. This centurion had an understanding of authority. By the way, I love the way the Lord works. This was not lined up to be on Memorial Day, but on Memorial Day weekend. 
As we as a nation give pause and remember for those who, who've died for our country in service. Here the text is all about a career military man, a centurion. He understands authority. Frank, does the military understand authority? Yes, sir. I knew he was going to say that. Man. This centurion was over other people, and he was under some people. He was a middle child. I'm number three of four brothers. I was like a centurion. I was over one, and two were over me. That's how it goes. He understood authority. For some time, we don't know how long, but he was relying on his own resources, depending on what he knew best, but desperation leads him to seek out Jesus. Interesting little alliance of forms. Do you think there was any love lost between Roman centurions and Jewish leaders? Generally, those are, if you don't, if you don't understand the context, those are, those are polar opposites. They are flat out enemies on almost every scenario. And yet he seeks out Jewish leaders to say, hey, go get, go get your guy. <laughs> Is Jesus even their guy? Not really. Jesus actually really upset the Jewish leaders. Why? Because the Jewish leaders were using their authority to build an earthly kingdom. What was a threat to that? A threat to that was give it all away. Give it to the poor. Give it to the have-nots. You want to talk about an admission scandal. Admission scandals are rocking this country. The biggest admission scandal in all of history was Jesus saying, you get in, you get in, you get in, and you're far from God. You don't get in, you don't get in. It was such a reversal of where people were thinking. It was such a reversal of what these Jewish leaders, by and large, were teaching. The centurion understood that there are realms and realities outside of his understanding and outside of his jurisdiction. So he made this logical leap of saying, this is how things function here. I bet the same thing is true in these other realms that I don't understand and I clearly don't rule over. So he laid down appearances, and he sought out a savior. The centurion sought out the one who seemed to be in, in control of this area of need that he had. He understood on some level. We don't know that, that when he says Jesus is Lord and, and says that he's a Lord, that he, that he completely understands the, the, the full realm of that. But he knows how things work. Just give a command. I understand this. I'm a military guy. He's understanding this. The rank of the one speaking trumps him having to go do it himself. He has agents. He has ways of accomplishing things. He just says the word. And that word carries weight. And that word gets things done. He knows this. Because he does the bidding of his superior officers. And his underlings do exactly what he says to do. He understands how this thing works. Let me share with you two stories. These are true stories. They're stormy situations. And I want you to overlay this idea of lordship and faith. The first one is from a headline. A partial headline reads this. After 40 years, megachurch pastor slams Christianity and quits. Some of these tweets have now been taken down, but this pastor explains some things said that his marriage was unfulfilling. He had tried everything, gone to all the classes, tried all the things, and it was unfulfilling, and he felt unsuccessful. 
He says, as a pastor, I served like crazy, and I received untold amounts of abuse, mostly from within the church and mostly from within my own congregation. He said, as a young man, he had doubts that were never answered. He saw early on that that the things he read about and studied about in the Bible bore sort of a striking similarity to some of the Greek gods and some of the, the, the mythical interactions and because of those similarities and because he never pursued answers, um, that, that, that left him hurting. He said over his years, he prayed for scores of people and watched them die. He gave the number of funerals he had done, never getting healed. So he quit. And he said when he did quit, he lost his church, he lost his community, he lost his family, and on it goes. Let me tell you about another pastor. His name is Ed Underwood. This pastor comes down with excruciating version of leukemia. He says this in his book, When God Breaks Your Heart. He says, my unique pain centers on the flaming, all-consuming irritation of my skin. When the leukemia erupted, one doctor explained, your blood is ticked off and takes it out on your skin. I knew when I was rashing. I could feel it in the beat of my heart, the pounding of the blood in my carotid arteries, and the whoosh of blood in my ears. Then the blood would boil from underneath my skin and turn it bright purplish red. The agony was excruciating. First the heat, then the insane itching, finally the weakness as my body began shaking from the effects of exfoliating skin. As my skin fell to the ground in talcum-like cascades, I lost the ability to regulate my temperature. Some primal instinct shook my body uncontrollably, jerking my limbs and convulsing my muscles as if I had been stripped of my flesh and thrown on a snowbank. Two different pastors, two different kinds of storms, both the catastrophic kinds of storms. How would you respond? Here's the truth I've come to know. I know how I hope I would respond. I don't know how I would respond. You do not know until you are tested. Who is Lord? Who is your faith in? Let me go back to the megachurch pastor. I want to start by saying this. His first name is Dave. It's not me. Pray for Dave. I want to start the tone of what I'm about to read about him with the tone of prayer. We ought to be praying for this man. Jesus is good, and Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Think about the idea of authority and who a person's faith is in. This megachurch pastor seemed to have faith in promises that God never made. I just read this this morning, that those who get married have many troubles in this life. Good job for not shouting amen. Some of you are like, oh, I want to say it. Um, there's a great book by, uh, by Gary Thomas called The Sacred Marriage, and the tagline of sacred marriage is this. 
something to the effect that your marriage is, it says this, what if your marriage is more about your holiness than your happiness? Not only did Jesus not promise that if you get married, all of your every Disney wish will be fulfilled. It actually promises you will have trouble. Paul says he's staying single. He says, some of you are called to be married. Go be married. But I promise you, trouble's coming. Life's going to get more complicated. How do I please God? How do I please my wife? Oh my goodness, there's little humans running around. I'm supposed to care for them. They're so cute and cuddly. They take my distraction mind off of that and put it on there. Wow, they're rolling their eyes at me. I feel rage. Oh my goodness, my little gods that I just developed my whole life around, they just moved out and now I've got to stare at my husband and wife again. What's happening? Life gets more complicated when you get married. This megachurch pastor said, man, I did every class. I tried all the stuff and my marriage wasn't fulfilling. Faith was in the wrong thing. Death and trials are part of this life. To the wrestling match that this man had with praying over things and not seeing the healings, not seeing the miracles, doing a funeral after funeral after funeral, and that got him off track. Let me just say this, miraculous healings are shocking signs to get our attention. Do you know why we call them miracles? Because they don't happen much, ever. They're so out there, we just go... Whoa! This is how Jesus always used miracles, by the way. You read the scriptures. They are signs pointing to something. Big giant neon signs saying this, this man right here, this Jesus is God. If we have that sort of arc of human history, I believe God performs miracles today, but I think there is a massive concentration in, in the New Testament, in the, in the original apostles. And what happens is this, if we read that and make some name it and claim it thing, God, I'm doing the exact thing that the Roman centurion did and you're not doing it for me. What's the deal? We get off track. How about the fact that there are similarities to the Greek God myths and the interactions of the God of the Bible and humanity? Do any of those similarities disprove the truth of the gospel? They don't. It is misplaced faith. With compassion towards this man, because I don't know him in any way, shape, or form. But I would say this. The Lord can be yourself, and the kingdom you are seeking first could be your own comfort and your own glory even as a pastor, dare I say, especially as a pastor. Jesus had all these harsh commands for the Jewish religious leaders. Why? They're the shepherds. They've been entrusted some things to resource and to serve and to give in exactly the way Jesus modeled servant leadership. And instead they were fat and lazy and self-seeking and prideful. And so this megachurch pastor had his authority, had, had who was Lord mixed up. And I pray it's temporary. Is there a way back for this man? Absolutely. In fact, I think it would be a phenomenal testimony if we read a headline someday that says, Former Pastor Dave of a megachurch 
says the best thing that ever happened was when he got booted out of his church. And we just hear a testimony of how Jesus saves the lost. For this second pastor, Ed, this book walks through his own battle with faith. And he comes out under the Lord's authority. It's a phenomenal read. I only have it in e-version or else I would just loan it to you from my library. But let me read for you an excerpt. He says, are you the type of Christian who lives for the next fun event, such as a getaway or a remodel as your source of ultimate fulfillment and meaning? Only you can answer that question. But that trip to Paris, that meteoric career, that bulging portfolio or new kitchen will mean nothing when you face the inevitable emptiness of life on earth. Your heart will break on the shallowness of external happiness as you find your soul dry as dust and your heart unable to draw from the living water the Lord gave you freely when you believed in Him. Neglecting what you really needed from Him, you have gone to the well of your own self-sufficiency for so long that your spiritual muscles have atrophied. What is one change you can make today, he writes, that will turn your life hard toward God. Maybe you need to earnestly study God's word. I love this. Not as a student, but as a practitioner. Some of you need to engage in the fellowship of a local assembly of believers. Others of you need to learn to walk in him under the mentoring relationship of a more mature believer. Study the word, involved in fellowship, placing yourself under older brothers and sisters who can guide you. He says, do it, my friend, do it now. You cannot get out of this life apart from these desperate days. This is a sin-stained planet full of pain and uncertainty. The only certainty for a child of God is his absolute ability to care for us as the only one who is perfectly reliable and strong. End quote. Lordship, faith, seeking after a kingdom, these are all central to our daily life. And Jesus is showing us what to do, who to turn to, how to behave, and what to avoid at all costs. I want to close by asking this question How about you? Would you say that you're drawing closer to God? becoming more and more dependent on Him, whether you're on a mountaintop or a valley or just kind of cruising along the level ground, nothing great, nothing terrible happening. Or are you becoming more established in your own strength? Are you advancing and coping with the trials on your own? Are you listening mostly to your own authority? I end by pointing out the word of Christ to you. I started with the truth of who Jesus is, that it outweighs where he is. Once you know who he is, where he is is irrelevant. You understand that his word goes forth. In fact, he told his disciples it'd be better for him if he left them. And his word has been faithful to accomplish his work ever since. Already in Luke's gospel, the word of Jesus is proving utterly different to people who interact with it. Luke 4 says this, They were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. In another setting it says, And they were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. This Roman, with very little instruction, had a kind of faith in God's word that astounded Jesus. How much greater our faith ought to be. Think about this, friends. We have an entire Bible to read, to study, to refer back to, to highlight, to digitally search our notes and highlights. Plus, we have 2,000 years of church history. We have the internet that tells us of what God's word is accomplishing in contexts very different from ours, but the exact same words of Christ accomplishing it. Mark 4 says what I'm guilty of, that we're guilty of no faith. And sometimes, as Matthew 14 says, we're guilty of little faith. My encouragement to you, church, is this. May our prayer be what we're going to get to in Luke 17, which says this. Lord, increase our faith. Jesus, we opened this morning singing to the King eternal, to the God invisible. And we affirm with our mouth, let us have the strength and grace to affirm it with our feet this week. That this God who's invisible is not absent. And God, these words that you speak over us, that you instruct us with this morning, have had in the past and are having and will have in the future the ability to transform us from the inside out, to form the very image of Jesus Christ in our lives. And for that, we just tearfully say, thank you. God, open our ears to hear you, even if our eyes can't see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.